0: What's up, everybody? This is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking. Our guest for this episode is Mike Caveney. Mike is a comedy magician, a magic publisher, an author, historian, and he's one of the most entertaining and enlightening lecturers I've ever seen work at convention. In the episode, we discuss both magic history and Mike's own personal journey. We had our conversation in the Egyptian Hall Museum, which itself has a fascinating and rich history that Mike briefly shares with us. We also discussed the rise and fall of vaudeville and the cyclical nature of magic in this country. After our little jaunt through the golden age of magic, Mike's kind enough to give me his own history and shares with me the development process for his character, his work ethic, and his creativity. Apparently fever dreams are helpful. (laughs) That'll make sense later. I strongly recommend you search out the work Mike has published over the years, including Wonders, his new book, which we discussed near the end of the episode, and how important it is to share the history and the thought process behind a routine as much as it is the finished product. If you love Magical Thinking and want to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash magicalthinking. Patreon helps me get better equipment for the show, as well as enables me to share the podcast with a wider audience. As a member of Patreon, you get access to an audiobook that I recently completed. It's called The Art of the Stage by Burling Hull. I also have a style category, and I just recently put up a video about how to style a leather jacket. And you'll get behind-the-scenes content from my conversation with Mike Caveney. One of the most powerful, emotional experiences of my entire life happened after our conversation at his house. It was... Crazy! I was weeping in front of him like a little baby. (laughs) I'm so grateful to him for that. And if you want to see that, go to patreon.com. Again, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash magicalthinking. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram and Facebook by searching Magical Thinking Podcast and Art of Magic. Join our newsletter at artofmagic.com. And if you want to learn magic or become a better magician, check out the Ambassador Program on ArtOfMagic.com. You'll get exclusive access to material that's never been released or is long out of print, and you'll also be able to message our team of experts directly. If you ever need some guidance or inspiration, we'll be there to help. Anyway, get into the episode, and if you have any magic-related questions or comments on the show, let me know what you think by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com. This is Mike Caveney. I know you guys are gonna love it. Enjoy. Um, I'll go first. <laughs> I'm curious about. So we're sitting in the Egyptian Hall Museum, which is ridiculous. Not ridiculous in any sort of negative way. I'm just geeking out a little bit because it's amazing. Um, and you were kind enough to share the story with me before we started recording. Would you mind? Sure. Recapping what that is.
1: So here's why this room that we're sitting in is called Egyptian Hall. In 1895, W.W. Durbin, who was a professional magician at the time, who lived in Canton, Ohio, decided he would build a theater in his backyard. And I mean a pretty substantial theater. It sat about a hundred people. It was a nice little place. And he knew about the very famous magic theater in London that uh, John Neville Maskelyne and George Cook had, Egyptian Hall, which was unbelievably famous in England. I mean, like Disneyland famous. Anyone in England that would go vacation in London, they would have to take the family to see the magic show at Egyptian Hall. So Durbin thought, well, America should have its own Egyptian Hall. And he named his little backyard theater America's Egyptian Hall which was nice. It was kind of funny. There's nothing Egyptian about it in the in the least. But that, that's what he did. And he knew everybody. And of course, being in Ohio, and, and this is the height of vaudeville, every magician in America passed through. And uh, so he asked all of his friends, hey, do you have any photographs or posters I'd like to decorate the inside of my theater? And everybody liked Bill Durman, So they gave him stuff And he just wallpapered the whole interior, all the walls and most of the ceiling with posters and photographs. And again, this is starting in 1895. So Alexander Herman's given him stuff and Harry Keller's given him stuff. Um, So it became an amazing place just to wander around and look at. Uh, In 1926, he became the president of the IBM. He was a huge supporter of the IBM. He became the editor of Linking Ring magazine. And in 1926, he decided, wouldn't it be fun to invite all the IBM guys to come up to Canton, and we'll have a little weekend get together. We'll do some shows in, in the theater and just hang out and have a good time. So he announced this and a bunch of people, 150, 200 people showed up. And it was the world's first magic convention that took place in his little backyard theater. And we have this great photograph of everybody sitting out in front, panoramic photograph. Uh, and so they did it the next year, and then soon after that, it outgrew the little theater, and they moved it to bigger cities with bigger theaters and continues to this day. And of course, now there's a magic convention everywhere, every weekend somewhere. Um, Durbin then died. There were two brothers that lived in Kenton, Ohio, uh, Bob and Tom Dowd, and they had kind of grown up around Egyptian Hall and going to the early conventions, and they purchased the theater and moved it about two miles out of town to the Dowd family farm. They built a new foundation for it and plopped it down. It sat there for years. Years after that, it got moved further out of town, and it still exists today, but it's a house. (laughs) And you could never even recognize that this little house used to be Egyptian Hall. I went and visited. Uh, In 1953, David Price, who was a, uh, a real serious collector from Nashville, Tennessee. He went up to Kenton to visit the famous Egyptian Hall and uh, he was amazed by what he found inside of it and asked if they had anything for sale. And they said, we'll sell you everything in the building. And he bought it and put it all in a trailer and they drove it back down to Tennessee and he added it to his existing collection. And it was at that time that David Price started referring to his collection As Egyptian Hall Museum. David Price spent almost the next 50 years adding stuff to this collection. He would buy entire collections, he would trade for things that he didn't have, he would buy single pieces, he spent all of his time writing letters and tracking down stuff that that he didn't have and wanted. Until David Price had the largest collection of magic posters in the world and it was like Mecca. He, he later moved to Brentwood, built a, a new house in Brentwood, Tennessee, and he built a big wing onto it just to house his magic museum. I went there back in the, I think in the 70s, a long time ago, and it was unbelievable. And became friends with David Price. He was a great guy. So we stayed in contact. In 1999, David Price died. And uh, a good friend of mine, another collector named George Daly from Pennsylvania, had never visited Egyptian Hall, and we knew that Dave Price's son, David Price the Third, was going to sell this. He was a circus collector, and he wanted to sell the magic collection. So, Dave, uh, George, and I went down to Brentwood and spent two or three days with Dave the Third and got the Cooks tour and saw this unbelievable collection of his father's. And uh, it's a bit of a long story, but ultimately. Uh, David Price III suggested that we go home and talk this over and make him an offer for the magic collection, which surprised us. And uh, we did. And after some negotiation and convincing of our wives, we (laughs) we, uh, purchased Egyptian Hall Museum, which was unbelievable. Uh, We we rented a 24-foot truck and had George's van and packed them both absolutely packed full. I think it ended up being, what was it? Five or six tons of paper, basically. Wow. And we took it all back to Pennsylvania. George had a friend with a big warehouse that we had access to. And we spread it all out in this warehouse. And we spent eight hours a day over there opening up things and spreading posters out on the floor and dividing them up between us and making another pile of things that we would sell to try and get some of our money back. And we spent weeks dividing this this collection up. Uh, then we had our sale. It was a two-day sale. First day was just a people bought stuff, and the second day was an auction. It was the biggest magic sale in the history of magic at that time. So we got enough money back where we didn't we weren't terrified anymore <laughs> that we were going to lose everything. And uh, and we each had these unbelievable collections now of books and magazines and posters and. All sorts of things. So uh, part of the deal was, Dave Price III, when, when we were visiting that time, he said, if you guys bought this, what would happen to the name Egyptian Hall Museum? Well, we hadn't given it a thought. And so George, off the top of his head, said, you know, I'd really just be doing this to enhance my own collection. I kind of have no interest in the name. And I thought, you know, it, this name has been around since 1895, it would. I think it would be a pity on our watch to have that all just go away. So I said, you know what? I'd be honored to continue that great tradition of the Egyptian Hall Museum. David later told us that was the only correct answer, that one of us said no and one of us said yes. Um, so that's why um, this room uh, is called Egyptian Hall Museum.
0: And all the things in here are from? No.
1: Uh, the lion's share of everything in this room is, but
0: I was a collector long before
1: uh, I became a partner in Egyptian Hall, and have continued to buy stuff. I mean, that was in 2000 mm-hmm. that we we did this deal. So for the past 17 years, I've added a lot of things to it. But yes, <laughs> I wouldn't have I wouldn't have needed to knock walls out of my house. To make room for this collection if if I hadn't gotten
0: Egyptian Hall. It's stunning. And we're surrounded by, literally surrounded by magic posters. And I'm curious as to, obviously they were for advertising, but how much of it is exaggeration and how much of it is... I just I'm curious about like what the audience experience. They see the posters, yeah. they hear the stories, and well, then they go to the show. The posters are
1: the posters are unbelievable in so many ways. Um, first of all, how they were produced. This is called stone lithography, and I won't go into all the details, but they're printed on big slabs of Bavarian limestone. You need a big fat stone for each color. Oh wow! Most of these are five-color posters, so five huge slabs of stone, and the artists who drew on these stones in reverse type, uh, each color on a different stone. So just that to me is mind-boggling. Again, and the other thing is, uh, stone lithography would be from around the eighteen seventies or so up until about World War Two. Then they invented offset printing, faster, cheaper, lousier, but that's what everyone, everything is today. So this is this is that niche and it kind of corresponds, it certainly corresponds with the golden age of magic of the, the whole run of vaudeville. It was all during this period of stone lithography. Uh, it was the only way to sell tickets to a show. You, you don't go on the radio, you don't go on television. You can put a little ad in the newspaper, but that's not very exciting, believe me. <clears throat> and, and these posters, so I'll point, that's a half sheet, okay? This is a one sheet. It's about 28 by 40 inches, roughly. They vary a little bit. But if that's a one sheet, imagine a three sheet. That rack back there is holding three sheets, about the size of a doorway. It's a pretty big printed image. You know, you stand in front of that and it's it's taller than you are. And now imagine an eight sheet, 7 feet wide by 9 feet high, or a 16 sheet, 9 feet high by 14 feet wide, or a 20 sheet or a 24 sheet, which are billboards. They're just enormous. And the images, I mean, these artists were so talented, and they would create these unbelievable images, which in many cases didn't even resemble what you would see on stage. But they would just dazzle the eye. And if you got up one morning and you're going to walk down Main Street to work and all of a sudden the side of every building and every fence has got some huge poster glued to it since you walked by yesterday and every little shop has a window card leaning up in the front window, that creates a lot of excitement and it's going to sell a lot of tickets. And these fantastic images would just send your imagination, you know, reeling with, oh my God, look at these pictures. I have to see this. On the other hand, here's a portrait of Alexander Herman. Over there is a portrait of the great Lafayette with his dog Beauty, the dog that Houdini gave him. They look like lawyers sitting there. You wouldn't even know these guys are magicians by looking at those posters. And what that means is, is that these guys were so famous that if somebody saw that poster glued up on the side of a building, they would say, oh my God, Herman's coming. We have to take the whole family to see his show. Uh, because everybody knew him. Everybody in the street knew those names. So it's it's pretty impressive where you can reach a point where just a, a formal portrait of you is all you need. You don't have to show any of the illusions you're doing and just, here I am, I'm coming to town, get ready.
0: That's amazing. And then... And then... <laughs> Is, is that still a technique that is applicable in our modern age? Is this this kind of heightened uh, extravagance in an image? Um,
1: not the way... I don't think it is the way it used to be. I mean, so much advertising now will be on television. If you tried to sell your show just with printed posters, you might be wasting your time. I mean, posters are good, but... Uh, yeah, radio and television and there's so many internet, there's so many ways to advertise something.
0: But I guess I, I guess my question is more like the posters are somewhat of a misrepresentation of what the completely, show is going to be.
1: Completely. And today I'm sure a disgruntled spectator could say, I didn't see that. You advertised this and I didn't. That's not what happened on the stage. That's false advertising. And now it's a big mess. You know, Back in these days, the days of P.T. Barnum, he would promise anything, and uh, people seemed to be happy. So, I mean, the shows were good. These were good shows. If they weren't, they wouldn't stay on the road. Sure. So, you know, you would see, like, there's a there's a, um, I know there's a photograph of Howard Thurston doing The Floating Lady, and The Floating Lady is floating right off the stage, out over the heads of the audience. It didn't happen. It didn't come close to happening. But it was a fantastic trick that he did, and he did float a lady, and it was unbelievable, and people loved it. So they just would cut him that slack. They they loved his show. They loved Thurston. They saw him last year. They saw him this year, and they're going to go see him next year because he always brought something new to town.
0: Is that do you consider that to be something that's important? Is is constantly working on the act and bringing new material?
1: Well, for these guys, for many of these guys, it certainly was. Uh, There's a big uh, distinction between, for instance, here's Alexander Herman. Here's Harry Keller. They weren't vaudevillians. They would rent not a vaudeville theater. They would rent an opera house. And they would come in for maybe a week, maybe three days, a split week, sometimes one night. But they were the whole show. And they would do a two-plus-hour show of illusions and comedy and manipulation and sleight of hand and, and that kind of thing. So they needed posters all over town to say, come see my show. For a lot of magicians, most magicians, they were vaudevillians. And they put together a nine-minute act or a 14-minute act, and they would be on the bill with nine other acts. And so what what's being advertised is the vaudeville show, at this theater. It's a vaudeville theater. Everybody knows it it is, who lives there. Everybody knows that on Monday night, there's a brand new show, all new acts in town. Uh, And so you just had to, the the vaudeville theater would maybe put an ad in the newspaper. Hey, here's who's coming in next week. And you might look and say, oh, I've seen this guy. He's fantastic. Uh, And that was the great thing about vaudeville. You know, with There was singers and jugglers and animal acts and tap dancers and magicians and an elephant act. You know, there's every kind of act you can imagine. So if you hated one of them, just wait 10 minutes (laughs) because there's going to be another guy out and you'll probably love him. So that was the great thing. It was just this great variety. So they didn't really use a lot of big, fancy, colorful paper to advertise vaudeville shows. And that's why many magicians... Didn't have big beautiful posters, but for guys who were going to go tour around the world, that had to advertise that they're coming to town, they needed posters. And these posters were so important. Without them, you're out of business. Period.
0: What was there a through line? I guess I, I'm as someone who's not um, very historically knowledgeable about magic, I'm curious if there is anything that the people who became Herman Lafayette famous, was there anything that they shared similarly? Was there some kind of spark? Did they just have it? What was it that made them, you know, were they outliers in some sort of way? What was it that made them so ridiculously famous as opposed to some of the Fogvillians who were doing good acts, but just didn't get this huge recognition? Yeah. I
1: mean, you could say that today and and I don't know the answer. The one thing they all had in common was they really loved magic because it was really, really hard work back then. I mean, these guys that went around the world, like the guy that I wrote a book about, Charles Carter, starting about 1907, he set out on his first world tour. Uh, back then, to, to go around the world, it's going to take you a couple of years anyway with a big, giant magic show. And you're going to be you're going to spend the first two weeks on a steam steamship leaving San Francisco, just getting to Hawaii to take on more coal and uh, provisions, food, so that you can make it all the way to Australia and start your your tour. Um, And then you're traveling on steam trains. And I remember reading that in, in Australia they'd load the show up on a train, and I mean tons of equipment. This stuff was so heavy. It was ridiculous. And they'd load it up on a steam train and they'd head out across the outback in Australia and they'd reach a point, the train would stop and Carter said, what are we doing? And they said, well, from here on to the other side of Australia, the tracks are a different gauge, they're narrower. So we have to take everything off this train and put on a different train. You gotta be kidding me. No, that's it. So everybody and everything would get hauled off of this train, put on the next train. They could go the rest of the way across Australia. <clears throat> then they'd get to Africa and they'd get to India and they're loading their trunks onto ox carts and getting hauled down these muddy roads. And You have to want to do this so badly to put yourself through that. It's just unbelievable. Now, uh, the other thing is, is that as they're going around the world, in some places... The audiences were fantastic. The word of mouth was unbelievable. They would stay for weeks and just make a fortune. And they'd think, life can't get any better than this. I'm living in fanciest hotel in town, eating in the best restaurants. The theater is packed every night. And then eventually, after they run, they would load stuff up onto a steamship and head to the next port. <clears throat> One port Carter was coming into, and there's guys out on the end of the dock, waving them away. Don't stop here. Everybody in this city's got malaria. Keep going. Ship would turn around and head back to sea. And now, you know, he had the theater rented. He had the posters up and can't even stop there. They keep going and land in some other city. They've got to go find a theater. They've got to make a deal to, you know, an empty theater. And I just can't imagine going through all that. So, you know, all that money they made in the last city now they're spending because everybody has to stay, eat somewhere, and sleep somewhere, and so all the profits are being spent, and it just seemed like a roller coaster ride. Um, and I don't know, some of these some of these magicians were tremendously talented, and audiences loved them. Others weren't so much, but they still loved magic, and they just went out and. Some of these guys spent their whole careers at the bottom rung of vaudeville. And those are the guys that amaze me the most. I know why Houdini did it. He made a fortune. They paid him so much money. It was just unbelievable. But how about the guy working in, you know, some little low-end vaudeville tour through the northern states, freezing cold, small audiences, horrible dressing rooms, miserable hotels and they did this year after year that's amazing that that those guys did it it wasn't for the money they just had to do it
0: wow there's a lot there's a lot more upward mobility now for for good acts because it's so much easier to be seen i can't imagine i personally can't imagine being tortured like that like talk about being a tortured artist like i know uh, oh my gosh Wow. I mean,
1: even, even for the big guys, it, it must have been hard. You know, Herman, Herman was an exception. He bought his own train car from Lily Langtree, who was a big star back in those days. This beautiful plush, a couple of train cars. One of them, though, is the one that he lived in, Ian Adelaide. And it was like the nicest hotel suite you could find anywhere. Um, wasn't like that for other guys. You know, they're, they're traveling in the, the Low end train car and staying in boarding houses, many of which said um, th- that wouldn't allow vaudevillians to stay in the boarding house because they had a bad reputation.
0: What was the what was the role that a magician was playing in society at that time? Because um, that had to play into the want to do it some some kind of way. Like, yeah, I think it was
1: different. I mean, uh, you know, when you look at these old magic shows, Keller and Thurston and. Carter and Nicola and Dante, uh, they all did things like the spirit cabinet. Well, nobody does a spirit cabinet today. I wonder why that is. Well, back then, I think people were all ready to believe, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when these weird, creepy things happen and they look at the posters and they see these little imps whispering in the magician's ear and they see these spirit forms flying around, on the posters, they're ready to believe this guy, this guy is in league with somebody with the devil or the spirit world or something. Um, so there was that whole end of it. You know, I, I just did the spirit wrapping hand at the magic castle, you know, and we would do seven or eight minutes with it and answer a couple of questions from people in the audience, which made it fun. And I don't know what Carter's, the, the hand that I used belonged to Carter though. It's the one that he used the, uh, I don't know what his routine was, but I do know from from programs and paperwork that I have, he would do 15 or 20 minutes with the spirit wrapping hand. And the newspaper reporters would say that it was absolutely fantastic and amazing and funny and entertaining. And so it's amazing. I mean, I had a hard time getting people to ask questions that they wanted the spirit hand to answer. Carter must have said, okay, no more questions. That's enough. We he had to, to cut it off. You have to <laughs> cut the thing off. Because everybody wanted to know about their own future. So that was different. Uh, I'm sure there were disappointed parents whose children said, I want to grow up and be a magician, just like there probably are today. (laughs) But, uh, yeah. That's fascinating.
0: Because I'm very curious about, like, I'm a close-up person. And... Jared Koff is one of my favorite magicians, if not my favorite. And the, the kind of stuff that he's doing now is more akin to, you know, reaching into that weird, dark, strange place. I know. I, I'm a big fan of his and I've seen him work many times. And
1: I think when people walk out of one of his shows, uh, they believe a lot more than, than they did when they went in there. They said, this guy's has some kind of special something. And, you know, instead of, boy, I wouldn't play poker with that guy sort of thing. Yeah. They think that he's the real deal, which is interesting.
0: It's very interesting. It's very interesting to me because I, I, there's so much, I don't know. I, for, From what I've seen, uh, it, magic is has fallen behind in uh, as far as entertainment is concerned. And we're in a bit of a resurgence now. Since Blaine, it's kind of been up, coming up as far as keeping in step with the rest of uh, performance art entertainment. Um, We're in a place now that's puts value on being vulnerable and sharing personally and talking about these universal truths that everyone can relate to. uh, But through, you know, you as the performer's point of view and a lot of the magic that I see is not that. And it's, it's cokey in a way, Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I'm curious about like what in the golden age, what other forms of entertainment were about, because magic did seem to be this sort of spiritualism almost, uh, you know, you were producing incredible, amazing, fantastic effects, but you were also potentially making people believe that you had supernatural abilities. And so I'm curious about how that related to other forms of artistic entertainment in vaudeville.
1: Yeah. uh, So vaudeville was absolutely king. If you wanted entertainment, that was it. Uh, The only other thing I would say uh, was in vaudeville, there were singers. There were lots and lots of singers and people, you know, on a vaudeville tour, you would travel all over the country singing, uh, you know, spending a week in each city singing. And so they developed fan bases and people had their favorite songs from these singers. And the music publishing houses would publish sheet music. Today, sheet music is something you see at the flea market, a big box <laughs> full, and it's a 50 cents a piece. But back in those days, sheet music was enormously popular. And, I mean, think iTunes or something. Uh, mo- many, many, most houses in America, they had a parlor. And in the parlor was a piano. And when you had friends come over, hopefully someone in the group could play the piano and they'd get out their stack of sheet music and play all the popular songs of the day. So, so singers at least had a little, could branch out that way. And, you know, they'd have their picture on the cover of the sheet music and people would play it at home and And new fans would be developed. And the next time that singer came to town, more people would go see them. Uh, But everything else, you know, it's just uh, variety acts. So when vaudeville started, you know, I mean, you have to go back to beer halls. In the 1800s, there'd be a, a saloon. And the main goal of the guy that owns the saloon is to sell beer, period. So if he could put a pretty girl up front and sing songs... And keep these guys in there longer, drinking more beer, listening to this pretty girl sing, he would do it. Or after this girl singer, if he could stick a magician up on that platform and and do some tricks, fine, I'll have him do that because I can sell more beer. Really rough conditions. I mean, there aren't curtains, there aren't, it's really a tough situation for a magician. Who's worried about threads and angles and, you know, where can I put stuff in the wings? And it just didn't exist. And when Tony Pastor first said, you know, and of course, it was men only audiences. No woman in her right mind would be caught dead in a in a beer hall. And Tony Pastor is the guy that says, you know, if we had a, a little place like this that wasn't full of spittoons and beer and we put on a show that women could could come to, and it wasn't so bawdy that they would be embarrassed to sit and watch it, I think I could double my audience. And even if kids could come to it, you know, there wasn't uh, bad language. And so he opened Tony Pastor's 14th Street Theater in New York, basically the first vaudeville house. And of course, when that became successful, everybody jumped on the bandwagon and said, well, that's what I'm going to do. And now every city in in America, every city in the world built these variety theaters, whether it was called vaudeville or variety or musical, it's all delivering the same thing. <clears throat> and when you're in a, in a vaudeville theater now, you've got the audience right in front of you in a controlled environment. You have uh, a stage that you can kind of trap door in and perform miracles with. You've got flies up above where people can't see what's going on up there. You've got a stage left wing and a stage right wing where you can put stuff and hide stuff and have people over there. I mean, it just changed everything for magic. And it's not surprising that the golden age of magic coincided with magicians moving into these perfect environments for magic. And all this great magic was invented and it was fantastic. Then when vaudeville died out because of of many reasons, radio and movies and and many other reasons, and nightclubs came in and hotel floor shows where there would be an orchestra behind you and in a nightclub, there'd be tables wrapped around a dance floor and performers would come out in the middle of that dance floor, be three quarters surrounded with the band behind them, say, do your magic there. Well, many magicians said, I can't do magic out there. It's impossible for, for you know, the lighting isn't right. The people are way around on the sides. I've got musicians behind me? How am I going to get my props out there? So it was just a sea change. Many magicians said, you know what? I'm done. I had a good long career in vaudeville and now I don't know what happened, but vaudeville is gone and this situation is impossible. Whereas some young guys who started out in vaudeville said, well, if this is it, if this is what we now have to deal with, I'm going to invent some magic that I can push out in the middle of that dance floor and do it. And they did. Uh, And Jack Gwynn was one of the beginners and lots, lots of guys who transitioned into floor shows and nightclubs. Uh, And then they, they built these fantastic nightclubs all over the world. And uh, it's funny in the, I would say the worst decade for magic in the 20th century was probably the 1950s.
2: Really? Yeah. Uh,
1: vaudeville is long gone, long gone. Um, amazingly during the war years and for years after the war, there was a lot of work in the USO for magicians and lots of other performers and it kept them busy all over the world. We had troops all over the world and, um, you know, just because the war ended on one day, there were still thousands of troops and camps and everything. And these guys worked for years afterwards. So it was, it was kind of a good thing for him. And in the 1950s, there, there was a date. I wrote this date in one of my books about <clears throat> um, Billboard magazine was all about vaudeville. And uh, they reported on all the theaters in the country and who was there and how they were moving around the country and reviewing acts. And it was the vaudevillians Bible. And then on the back page, they, st- you know, just coming along in like the the fifties, uh, they started writing about rock and roll music. And on one day, rock and roll got moved to the front of Billboard magazine and Vaudeville kind of got pushed to the back. And eventually Vaudeville was gone. And it was all, all anybody wanted to know was rock and roll. And so the fifties and sixties were really tough for, for magic. Now, there were, there were some great acts. There were some great nightclub magic acts like Channing Pollock and Marvin Roy and Jack Codell and guys, uh, the Keeners, uh, Americans who all ended up going to Europe uh, because that's where so much of the work was. But for everybody else, it was, it was tough going. So it, it was interesting to hear you say that David Blaine kind of you know, elevated things. And you're absolutely right. He did. But that was not the beginning of mm-hmm. the big magic boom. And I remember when I was in high school, I was a complete geek because I was a magician. You know, that was that was just the hokiest thing you could be. Mm-hmm. In 1974, Doug Henning opened on Broadway. And all of a sudden, he's in Newsweek magazine. He's on the Johnny Carson show. There's a, a big, fat magic show. At the court theater in New York on Broadway, everybody's talking about it. You know, everybody's seeing the, these illusions. You know, many of them old classic illusions from the golden age, but they hadn't been seen in generations. Mm-hmm. You know, and people would say to me, You know, do you know how those tricks work? Well, yeah. And, you know, all of a sudden, I'm the cool guy because <laughs> I know about magic. And I went in 70, uh, I think it's maybe. Yeah, I think in 74, I went to New York and saw the magic show. And I've always said I walked into the court theater as a complete geeky kid and walked out as the coolest guy in town because I was a magician and Doug had made it cool again. And then Doug started touring and his shows were just fantastic. And audiences said, wow, magic is really amazing and Mm -hmm. entertaining and cool. And then he started doing his TV specials and then the whole world, you know, got a big dose of magic every, every year then. And that was the beginning. And we kind of say that Doug opened the door and David Copperfield walked through the door. Yeah. Cause then David started doing, uh, TV specials and touring and, and just kept going it seemed like forever, you know, 20 annual TV specials. So it was pretty amazing. It was amazing. And of course, you know, when David was touring, everybody wanted to try to be David Copperfield, which is always a mistake. And most all of them looked foolish trying. And then along came David Blaine. And instead of chasing after David Copperfield and wearing a white shirt and black jeans and having a fan blow his hair, he did everything the opposite. You know, David's in a big fancy theater. I'm going to have no theater. David's got beautiful girl assistants. I'm gonna have no assistants. David's got big, incredible stage illusions. I'm gonna have no props. And he kind of turned around and started running the other direction. And boy, when his first TV special was on, it was fantastic. David is the one that reminded everybody, including the magic world, why we do this stuff. It's not about look how good my sleight of hand is. Turn the camera around and show this guy's face and when that magic mopens when the magic moment happens and this spectators head explodes that's why we do it and that's what david did he showed the reaction of the spectators you know out in the street turning around and running screaming down the street that was just fantastic so everybody stopped chasing david copperfield and turned around and started running the other direction and uh and here we are so yeah, this is a, an amazing time for magic. There's lots of magic on TV and lots of magic out in theaters around America. There's lots of magic in Las Vegas and it's not hard to find a magician. The magic castle's packed every night. So this is a good time for magic. But now with that big build up, <laughs> you know, it's like it's like when Detroit was motor city you know, this thriving, huge city with gleaming skyscrapers and beautiful suburbs. And and it all comes tumbling down for whatever reason, and it just crashes and burns. And, and it seems like that happens a lot. It has happened to magic. Um, and you just wonder, I wonder where we are on this big bell curve. Are we, are we still creeping up towards the top? Are we have we already sl- started sliding back down into a gully?
0: <laughs> that's yeah. That's that's the question that I ponder on frequently. Is because it is in waves, and and I would consider. I, I didn't mean to imply that Blaine was the person who brought magic back from vaudeville because uh, Doug Henning. I mean, like every every person that I know in my life that's older than me that isn't a magician. Who's your favorite magician? Well, when I was yeah. a kid, Doug, it depends Hennig, you know. on their age. But yes, yes. Um, so I don't want to downplay what no. Henning or Copperfield have done at all. Um, but again, Blaine to me made to me it it seems like he made magic accessible to people who weren't into magic. Um, and a lot of my friends who are a little bit older than me cite David Blaine as the person who got them interested and. I think that's good. And then again, putting that next to like with what, uh, Derek is doing in New York with in and of itself, that is to me so sorely what magic needs. He's out there leading by example, reluctantly. (laughs) I feel like, um, and, and I think that that's, I think what he's doing is absolutely beautiful and brilliant and necessary in this current entertainment culture. Um, the long form personal entertainment is kind of what people are interested in now as a reaction to instant gratification and social media, things like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think the one thing that will never go out of uh, style is that people are interested in people and, you know, you can, you can buy a trick box from the magic shop and it's, they don't, people won't know how it works and that's amazing. And, but that's kind of it. But Derek Derek has written this autobiographical show and he has snuck magic effects into it. And you'll be listening to him tell one of his stories and watching something unfold up there. You don't even realize you're watching a magic trick. When he builds that card castle around the brick, you say, well, that's kind of interesting. Wow, look at that little card castle. And with one breath of air... Blowing those cards down, people realize, wait a minute, there was a brick in there. I didn't even realize he was setting me up to turn the sprinklers on me and make that brick disappear. So it's great. So that's why I don't even tell people, you know, go see this show. It's not even a magic show. Oh, your, your mind will be blown. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. The magic is absolutely unbelievable. But... Um yeah, don't think you're going to go and see see a guy with white tie and tails and a magic wand. Yeah, and it's great. And Derek has a very interesting story to tell, and and he wraps it in these beautiful magical effects and and look, people are reacting, and it's tremendously successful.
0: I really love the the less is more of that show. It's yep. six pieces of quote unquote magic. I mean, it is magic, yeah. but but. No. And each one is a knockout and that's it. You know, it's, it's not trying to be anything that it isn't. Yep. It's not machine gun magic. It's just beautiful metaphors that happen to be magic tricks. I love it. Yep. Um. Okay. So we, <laughs> we went from vaudeville up to today. Yeah. Now I want to talk about you personally, and I appreciate you uh, discussing magic history. And you know, of course I'm sure there's, Many other things we could talk about. But I'm curious about you, Mike Caveney, the magician. How did that start?
1: Well, I know how it started. (laughs) Uh, That's good. Yeah. And it started like every kid. And this is one of the great mysteries to me. The way it started, I was nine years old and my cousin John uh, showed me a little atom set of multiplying billiard balls and blew my mind. And I I don't even know where he got them. But he had them, and he wasn't particularly interested in them. And he gave them to me. He said, you can have these. Uh, And so I took those home, and it's amazing. I felt like, I mean, I can remember where we stopped for dinner on the way home and sitting in a booth in a little fish restaurant and inventing a move. Of course, it had been invented 100 years before I did. But that I could do with these balls. And it was—it just seemed amazing. Now, I wasn't a show-off kid. I was, you know, an introverted kid, like so many magic kids are. It, I didn't want to have this so I could immediately take it to school and show my friends. I didn't take it anywhere and show it to anyone. But getting that one trick, this path opened up in front of me that I could see stretched far beyond the horizon. How? What do you mean? I don't. I don't know. I thought. I, then I discovered there were magic books in the library and I, I would check them out and thought, well, these shouldn't be in the library. <laughs> these are the greatest books in the library. And, you know, any pinhead can go get these and see how these tricks work. That's not right. And I would check them out and take them back and immediately check them out again. And I thought, if I can keep these at my house for as long as possible, these secrets will be safe. Uh, then I found a magic shop seven and a half miles from my house. And I thought, well, I can ride a bicycle that far on Saturday morning. And the magic shop was Owen Magic Supreme, makers at that time of the most beautiful magic on earth. So I would ride my bike there every Saturday morning. And I thought that this was a typical magic shop, <laughs> not the one magic shop with the most beautiful apparatus on earth. So I'd hang around there all day Saturday and finally they said, look, instead of just standing here, why don't you come back in the shop and sand something or I polished metal and, and I would get paid in props. And so that was fantastic. And I remember the day that Marvin Roy came in to pick up a prop. And I remember the day that Channing Pollock came in to pick up his double sawing and half illusion that he did on the Hollywood palace. And so in actually in my book, that's right. I, write, I wrote about two things. When you went into Owen Magic, they had a little showroom. This is when they were in Alhambra. And there was a, a, just a door in the corner that led into the shop. And when that door opened, when someone walked through the door, you could see into the workshop. At that time, Carl Owen was working there and Les Smith had owned the company then. And I thought, oh, if only I could walk through that door. That's all I want is to be able to walk through that door. Because anyone could walk into the showroom, but no one can walk through that door unless you're a magician on the inside. So that became a big deal. And and so when I finally got invited to come back and work in the shop alongside Carl Owen, it was, it was like I had arrived in the world that I wanted to uh, exist in. At tea time, there would be a break and everyone would go back and sit at a table and have a cup of tea. No coffee breaks at Owen. It was tea time. So everybody had a coffee cup with their name printed, painted on it. And, uh, and there were a couple of blank cups for guests. And there would oftentimes be a visitor. And one Christmas, they gave me a coffee cup with my name on it. It was like seeing my name on the marquee at the Palace Theater. It was fantastic. And the other thing I wrote about in my book was, <clears throat> starting when I was about 13, uh, my dad in the newspaper said, hey, there's a magic show at the Wilshire E. Theater. Milt Larson's its magic show—and like, wow, we've got to go to this. So my dad took me to the Wilshire Bell Theater, <clears throat> and I saw the, my first big, real magic show with real magicians on a real stage with an orchestra in the pick, and it was unbelievable. And when you get to the theater at the Wilshire Ebell, there's a an alley that goes down the side, and there's a big stage door. Anyone can walk down that alley. And when that big stage door opened, you could see right straight into the backstage area, and there I was again. I need to walk through that door somehow. That's all I want. I want to get in. I want to be able to go backstage. <clears throat> so every year I would go to the It's Magic show, and uh, I mean, what a great education! Milt Larson would bring these great magicians from around the world. There weren't ways. There weren't. There weren't ma- magicians on TV very much, maybe on the Ed Sullivan show every so often. How old were you? When was this? Well, the first one I went to, I was, uh, I think, 13. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was really inspiring. So I started, you know, and then I found Joe Bird's shop over in Hollywood, which was fantastic. And, uh, and I started buying tricks and buying books and doing birthday sh- party shows. And um, so it was good. And uh, then I discovered the Long Beach Mystics, which was a, a group of teenage magicians down in Long Beach, California. Now, I grew up in Arcadia, which is near where we're sitting right now in Pasadena. Long Beach is about 30 miles away. So when I was 14 or 15, I had no way to get to the meetings. But I did manage to get a ride down to their annual show. The it's amazing show in, in Long Beach. And he, I'm, I'm a kid with two suitcases full of tricks that was trudging off to birthday parties. And I had built a roll-on table in woodshop and school, and I'm just doing a bunch of tricks. It must have been horrible. <laughs> and, and then I went to the It's Amazing show, and I saw all these other kids my same, same age. They've got these pretty girl assistants, and they've got, they're wearing tails, and they've got recorded music, and they're doing doves. And, and I just was blown away. And I said, I can't believe it. I mean, I'm not even in these guys' league.
0: Did you feel like a phony?
1: <clears throat> well, I was a phony, but I wanted to join this club. And I knew I couldn't do it with two suitcases full of tricks I bought at Joe Burns. So uh, one year at the It's Magic show, I saw a guy named Tony Marks that did a thimble a thimble routine. And I, I don't know why. It seemed like a weird thing for a magician to do. But <laughs> I, did, I came up with a little silent seven-minute thimble act. And so when I got my driver's license at 16, I was able to drive to Long Beach and join the Long Beach Mystics. And it was a huge turning point. These were all guys my age, all crazy for magic, all working on their own acts, all trying to get on next year's It's Amazing show. Um, The Pacific Coast Association of Magicians would have a convention somewhere on the Pacific Coast. And a group of guys would go to that and they would compete in the contests. and So it was very competitive and yet everybody helped each other. Mm-hmm. So it was a great environment. And uh, it's amazing today, the magicians out around the world performing today that started out in that Long Beach Mystics Club. But here's the thing that I ne- I've never been able to explain. <clears throat> so many kids, I mean, I've talked to millions of them. They say, oh yeah, when I was a kid, I got a magic set for Christmas and or, you know, my uncle gave me a magic book or showed me a magic trick, whatever it might have been. And they, they kind of got into magic a little bit. and they were buying tricks and showing them to their friends, just like we did. And then they got out of it. They discovered girls or they started playing baseball or, or whatever they did. And they got out of it. What is it with some kids that they get that first trick and it's it spins them around? It changes their whole life. They never stop. It's all consuming and it kind of guides the entire rest of their life and they don't want to change a thing about it. It's the best thing that ever happened to them. I don't know. I don't know what that is.
0: (laughs) I don't either. No. And that's why I asked. And now I know there's no answer. (laughs) There's no answer. Here
1: we sit. Wow. Yeah. Um, I remember hearing Virgil, the great Virgil and I think it was him that said uh, most people work 52, 50 weeks a year so that they can go fishing two weeks each year and he said as magicians we get to go fishing 52 weeks a year. I know magicians that you know they perform all year long and that when they finally want to take a vacation they go to a magic convention and watch magic shows. Because it's they love it more than anything on Earth. It's quite
0: amazing. It's all-consuming. Yeah. I don't understand it. And, of course, Di
1: Vernon's the one that said, you know, you, you're never going to learn it all. There's always something new to, to learn. Vernon used to sit up at the castle, you know, and you go, this guy's 90-something years old. He has to have seen it all. You know, and some guy would come in with something new, and his eyes would brighten up, and he was a little kid again seeing a new magic trick.
0: It's quite amazing. You mentioned being in the alley at the It's Magic show and wanting to go through that door. This is this intention, you know, being being at the being at the shop. I want to go through the door into the shop. Being at the show, I want to go through the door into the backstage. These these very specific goals, kind of guiding you and making your decisions for, or helping you make your decisions. I don't think a lot of people do that. I, I And and here's why I say that. This, this is something that I figured out about myself that I was doing. Is I would go, okay, that's that's what I want. I'm going to make it happen. And then you kind of just check in every once in a while. Is this, am I on the right path? Is this doing the right thing? But it's like a very clear thing. For example, like, you know, when I met Dan and Dave, I was like, I want to work for Dan and Dave. And uh-huh. then it I it happened. I just figured out how to make it happen and that strategy I was able to deconstruct and use that in other places in my life to get things that I wanted to get and it sounds selfish but it's just like I'm using these techniques and it sounds like that's what you were doing when you were young and probably you're still doing (laughs) but finding this thing that you want more than anything and going that's that's it and then Doing things that are fulfilling, but are also achieving that goal. Right. So I decided I want to be a magician. Yeah. And, back,
1: and you know, when you're a kid, I don't even know what that means. Mm-hmm. Because, again, it was a not a great time for magic. But in high school, yeah, you know, you're just in high school. And you know, you're hanging out with your buddies. And I was on the cross-country team and the track team, so I had other things to do. But always number one was magic. I remember there was a, a cross-country race. And our team was going to it. And I had a show. I'm sure it was a birthday party. I was probably making 15 bucks. And I said to the coach, uh, hey, I got a problem. And I was ready to blow off the whole team to go do this magic show. And fortunately, my mom said, you know what? If if you don't go on the bus, or you, I guess I went on the bus with the team to wherever our race was. And she said, I'll, you know, she used to come. My mom and dad were great supporters. And they'd come watch the race. And then I jump in the car and and she could take me, you know, so I didn't have to miss this show. I could do both. Um, But magic was always first. There's another funny story. Uh, When I was in college, now you're in college, you're getting closer to, I got to do something pretty soon. (laughs) And I knew some guys that were firemen and every fireman that I knew had another deal. They They were a fireman and something else because they have so much free time. And I thought, you know, that might work. You could be a fireman and you could also be a magician. So when I was in college, I heard that uh, the fire department was having tryouts to be a fireman. And step one was the physical agility test. And I thought, I'm going to go do this. So I went and dragged a fire hose up and hooked it up to a hydrant and ran whatever we ran and did things and so I passed the physical agility test and the guy said, "Okay, the next part is the oral exam where we interview you." So you come into this wherever it was on Saturday morning and we interview you. And I said, "Oh, I I have a show that more I'm doing a show." And I remember it was it was like in a department store, it was Breakfast with Santa <laughs> and a magic show. And I can tell you exactly how much I got for that, 35 bucks. And I said, I can't, I can't come to the, I can come any other time. And the guy said, well, if you want to be a fireman, you'll be at the station Saturday morning at 1030 in the morning. I said, I I can come any other time. He said, well, you get to pick, I guess, don't you? And I said, all right, so much for my fireman career. And I blew off that whole plan so I could go do a show with Santa Claus in a department store. For 35 bucks. For 35 bucks. Yep. Um, so that was interesting. And so now I'm in college. Let me see. In 19... Yeah, I'm dating myself. 1970, I went to the, my first Abbott's get-together. I'm still in college. And one day, there was a lecture by a guy named Bud Dietrich, whom I didn't know. And he was going to do a lecture on trade shows, which i never heard of. And I went to the little elementary school where they did the lectures. And Bud did a lecture on trade show magic, of which he was very successful at. And it was completely eye-opening. Because I always thought, you know, to be a magician, does that mean you do magic shows at 2 o'clock in the morning in a smoky nightclub somewhere for a bunch of drunken spectators? Didn't sound that appealing, actually, as much as I love magic. And now Bud is talking about working for these big corporations and doing magic at these trade shows in a booth and tying it in with a product and all. And I thought, man, that's interesting. So when I graduated from college, I decided I want to do some trade shows. And I thought, I need a a job to hold me over for the summer until I can get something going. And amazingly, a few miles from my house was a company called Johnson Products. And I went over to Johnson Products and met them and said, I'm looking for a job. And they said, okay. And amazingly, the guy who owned then and to this day owns Johnson products, Sam Laporte, uh, wasn't a magician and isn't a magician and had no idea how any of these. He couldn't perform one of these tricks if he had to, (laughs) but he was a really good machinist. So now he finds a guy who knows nothing about machining metal, but who was a magician. So he hired me. And uh, so I learned to run a machine and turn out coin tricks. And that gets real boring real quick. <laughs> and I thought, why why aren't we taking these to conventions? He basically was selling everything he made wholesale. So I said, no, we should be taking this to conventions. And Sam said, you know, what? what's a convention? So I built a little demonstration stand and I built two showcases. And I loaded up a little trunk and headed out and went to the IBM convention and the SAM convention. And... <clears throat> sold a ton of stuff, came back, gave Sam a shoebox full of money. And he said, go wherever you want, go, keep doing whatever you're doing. So that was fantastic. I started going to FISM and I went to Japan and I went to Hawaii and I went to Europe and with Johnson product dealer display, you know, and yes, I stood in the booth and demonstrated coin tricks all day, but I also met everybody and saw everybody. And it was really, really good. And that summer job, I ended up working with Johnson Products for about 10 years because at the same time, I did start doing trade shows. Uh, but, you know, I do a trade show here and a trade show there. And it was it was easy for me to say to Sam, hey, I'm taking next week off. I got to do a trade show. And he said, fine. So I got to do both. Uh, so I kind of lived on the money that I made off Johnson Products and I took the money I made from Doing trade shows and stuck it in the bank. So I did trade shows for about 10 years, which was good. But trade shows is kind of being a glorified carnival barker. I mean, you're there eight hours a day grinding these shows out. And I mean, any close up magic that I do today is close up magic that I learned to do during those 10 years of, of trade shows. I mean, it's, it's a new audience every 15 minutes if you want it to be. And uh, so it was good. It was good, but it wasn't getting up and doing a real magic act like I'd always dreamed of. So I, uh, at the same time, I, of course, living in LA, I was able to join the Magic Castle when I was 21 and I immediately started performing my stand-up act at the castle. Stuff that I had sort of developed as a Long Beach mystic. And back then it was working. The big theater was down in the basement, um, four shows a night, seven nights. 150 bucks a week. And it was fantastic. I mean, I worked with some great magicians down there. And, uh, you know, that was like going to graduate school. Four shows a night with a, a lay audience. Instant feedback. Yeah. You know, and I would record, you know, a show. And then on the drive home, listen to the recording. You know, and when something would happen or when something, somebody in the audience would say something, I would stop the tape. Because in the heat of the moment you might not come up with the right answer. But driving home, I would stop the tape and say, okay, what should I have said there? Where should I, I have led that situation to? And I might think about it all the way home and all the next day. And eventually you're gonna figure out, oh, if only I had thought of this to say. And you file that in your memory bank and say, if that ever happens again, I'm gonna be ready for it. So it was just a great, great place to learn how to be a magician. And so many people did that there. And I, I hope they realize that, that while we were only making hundred and fifty bucks a week, you were learning to be a magician, which was worth a lot more than that paycheck. So eventually, um my friend Bill hers hired hired me and Tina to do a corporate show, and I kind of had my eyes open to that whole corporate world. And that was that was more like <clears throat> not real show business, not like vaudeville theater show business, but great stages and great sound and great lights and great audiences and, and being able to go out and do your act once. And uh, so that was good. I felt like at that time, that was kind of where show business was at. So many people were in the corporate world making good money, doing whatever, you know, whether they were a singer or a comedian. So that was good. That was a good thing. And just by, Performing at magic conventions and, and performing around the world, we got seen. And by having something a little different to offer, both Tina and I, we just kept being invited to places around the world. And, and that's kind of what we've done ever since.
0: How did you develop your act? Because, I mean, another thing that I see to and I'm, I'm part of the online magic industry. So people are buying tricks And they're just doing them the way they're performed and they're copying and, uh, you know. Well, that's how you don't do it. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And believe me, I have nothing against that. I mean, there's, hey, I look at all those internet ads and they're just unbelievable. They're fantastic. But I would say if you really want to be one of these guys that are out there doing it around the world, the place that you aren't going to find the key to that success is in an internet ad, because if you buy that and you learn to perform it as written really well, and let's say you do it on TV or you do it at a big convention and 500 people see you do it at a convention and they say, that's fantastic. They go up to their hotel room, log on, buy that trick, and now you've got 500 competitors doing your act Mm -hmm. because it isn't your act. It's a thing that's available. Yeah. So let me see, uh, back when I did it in the Stone Age, it was a completely different world. Um, and it, let me tell you, in my act, it was just straight ahead, regular old stuff. Uh, I did uh, a cut and restored rope professor's nightmare routine. I did a jumbo invisible deck. I did a money machine and the linking rings. Yeah. You're not going to end up headlining with that with those <laughs> necessarily. Um, and it was my friend Pete Biro that, that had seen me and seen my linking ring routine. Uh, and he said, hey, I found a, uh, this heavy-duty coat hanger. You should do your linking ring routine with coat hangers. So I thought, wow. And I, bought, I got some of these coat hangers, and I made a set of linking coat hangers. And discovered that I couldn't do my linking ring routine with them because they're not rings. They're different shapes. But I played around with them and I, I discovered I can do some things with coat hangers that you can't do with rings. So uh, I already had in my routine the, the hacksaw that got caught on the ring, which was an idea that Alan Wakeling gave me. And so I, I came up with this linking coat hanger routine with the hacksaw. And it was amazing. It was amazing to, to do this at the Magic Castle and then to do it at a magic convention and to see the reaction of magicians. It's, it was as if I had invented some great new magic trick. Yeah. And I wanted to say, guys, you realize this is the linking rings done with coat hangers. It's the same effect. Didn't seem to matter. Oh, the, have you seen the coat hanger thing? The guy with the coat hangers. And I became that guy with the coat hangers. And I started doing conventions around the country, and I started going to, to Europe. And I thought, well, this is fantastic. What I had done was taken a proven, good commercial trick with a, a great principle, good effect, simple effect, and changed the props, turned the linking rings into the linking coat hangers. That was a huge lesson for me. So that became the finish to my act, linking coat hanger guy. Uh, the next thing that I came up with uh, was weird. I had the flu. I was very sick. I was in bed feeling horrible and I fell asleep and I had a dream. You probably never even saw the arm juggling routine.
0: No, I've never seen it.
1: Well, I, I had a dream about uh, <clears throat> teaching an audience how to juggle uh, simple two hand juggling. And out of a bag, I would take two
0: mannequin arms. <laughs> and the arm. Did you do this on a TV show? Is there like a clip online of you doing this? There online? probably is. I from, think it's from the Magic Palace. Uh, Magic I
1: Palace so. in Canada, I did. The arms, the, the coat sleeves on the arms matched the coat sleeves of my coat. So it looked like my arms were five feet long. <laughs> so it was a very funny visual. And I dreamed this entire routine. I mean, from start to finish with all the gags and everything. And I woke up in a cold sweat. I thought, holy smokes. And they always say, oh, you should keep a tablet next to your bed so when you get an idea. I've never done that in my life. But I staggered out of bed and I found a piece of paper and I wrote down this entire dream. And when I I fell back asleep, when I got up the next morning, I read this thing and I went, I got to try this. (laughs) So I came up with this arm juggling routine and it became very strong and it became so strong that the linking coat hangers couldn't follow it. So, the arm juggling became the end of my act. And the coat hangers kind of got retired. So, I closed my act with this juggling thing. Um, And about 1981, Bill Larson invited me to perform on the It's Magic show, to MC the It's Magic show. You got to walk through the door. Well,. No, 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 (laughs) because it wasn't at that theater. Oh, it was at a different theater. But yes, I got to walk through the ceremonial backstage, it's magic door. And, and it was unbelievable. I said, who's on the show? And he said, well, we got this kid. Nobody's ever heard of him, but he's, I hear he's really good. His name is Lance Burton. And it was kind of Lance's coming out party here in the West. And the closing act was Richie Artie, the greatest illusionist that I saw in my life. So it was this huge opportunity. And I thought, you know what, I need to step it up. I would like to, do... and I had months. So that's when I decided what would be, what would be amazing? Well, you know, what trick would I like to see? And I finally decided that what a great trick would be is if I could get a spectator up and borrow his jacket and, and stick a, do the knife through coat and then have a bunch of silverware fall out of the guy's coat and produce a chicken out of his coat and hand him his coat back. <clears throat> So that was my goal, and I put together a very early version of that routine and kind of for the first time did it on that It's Magic show. And what, then,
0: was, what was the inspiration for that effect? Um, boy, that's a good question.
1: <clears throat> I mean, that's, that's a strange thing.
0: This is what I want. Boom.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I always liked the knife through coat. Mm-hmm. I hadn't done it, but I'd seen guys do it. And I read about it in books, and I thought it's a it's a neat trick. You know, where you borrow a spectator's coat and you apparently damage it, and that's a funny situation, and then it isn't damaged, it's restored, and it's a good trick. And I thought, you know, now you want to up the ante. What can I, what's the finish? Is the finish really, hey, look, there's no hole in your coat? Then it just is kind of a puzzle. Huh, I thought there would have been a hole, but now there isn't. Okay, so I thought producing a chicken Thurston used to produce a duck out of a spectator's coat, and it was amazing, and people screamed and laughed, and I thought that was good. And it kind of didn't make any sense. You know, you do this trick with the knife through coat, and here's a chicken. Yeah. Why is there a chicken here? I don't know where the chicken came from, but what does that have to do with anything? And I I love bringing logic to magic, even though all magic is illogical. I love making magic, having this crazy logic to it. So, and I can tell you where all of this came from. It was sitting at Johnson Products, cutting, folding half dollars. I am ashamed to say that in my decade at Johnson Products, I cut 40,000 folding coins. I got paid by the piece. That's how I know. We kept track in a little book. Uh, Now, the first dozen folding coins that you cut, you have to pay very close attention to what you're doing. And the next 40,000 of them, you almost don't have to pay attention. It was complete autopilot. And I would go to work and Sam said, hey, we're out of folding halves." So I would sit down and my mind would wander a million miles away. And at the end of the day, I would be surrounded by folding coins and not, not even remembering where they came from. But I had spent all day, what if, what if, what you know, could this work or would what would make this better? What would be logical? So because I was doing banquet shows, I would be the magician, the entertainment after dinner for whatever organization. That's kind of kind of the what I did then. I thought it would be good if I got a spectator would do a trick with your jacket and we do the the knife through the coat, although in my act in like two other routines, I used a big long pair of scissors. So that's why I replaced the knife with this big pair of scissors. Mm -hmm. And I like scissors because you could take a big long pair of scissors, you could shove that through a jacket theoretically. But now if you want to pull them all the way through, you're not pulling a knife handle through there. You've got this big scissor handle that isn't going to fit through that little hole. And if you do pull it through, it's going to make that hole in the guy's jacket go from half an inch to three inches. Mm -hmm. So that I thought the scissors would be good. So now we've just, they've just finished dinner and out comes the magician and I get a guy up and borrow his coat. And I do this trick with it where I push scissors through his coat and I show that there's no hole in the coat that would normally be the end of the trick. But now if a spoon fell out of his coat and everybody's sitting at a banquet table, And if he's the president of the company that we're doing this show for and the audience goes, oh, my God, he's stealing silverware. It brings a whole new level of they can't believe that the boss is stealing silverware and he knows he didn't. Uh, So it's this weird, crazy moment and then another spoon and then a shower of spoons and then it's raining silverware onto the stage. And now everybody realizes he didn't steal anything. This is this is a magic thing. But all this silverware falls out of the guy's coat, uh, and then the way it is today, uh, a metal tray falls out of his coat, and then a second metal tray. And then I say, <clears throat> I'm surprised you didn't pick up a nice water pitcher to complete this set. And a big metal water pitcher falls on the floor. And at that point, um, I bring in this crazy dumb magic logic, and I say, well. You've set the table because there's silverware and pitchers and trays all over the floor. I may as well serve dinner and I I pull a chicken out of his coat. Now, none of that makes any sense, but it has that crazy logic. Yes. You've set the table. I'll serve dinner and I pull a chicken out of his coat. The great thing is is oftentimes I will have done half an hour and I kind of don't have any props you know, mostly things that sit on my this little bar stool or in my pockets. And so I've been out there for half an hour. And in the last few seconds, I have a live chicken in my hand. And they're thinking, where has that chicken been for the past half an hour? It just seems impossible. So it's an amazing trick. The boss is the big star of the show. Uh, he has no idea where the silverware or the chicken came from. Uh, the employees get to rib him for the rest of their lives. You know, Hey Joe, you got a chicken in your coat this morning. And so it became, it became a great finish for my act, uh, better than the arm juggling. So the arm juggling got retired. So, and that's, I don't know, that's kind of how a magic act I think
0: develops. Yeah. I, I, it's fascinating to me that that first billiard ball that you were given you came up with the move and that's kind of, it inspired this creativity where, uh, as I was saying before, this sort of modern magic learning craze is copying. And I'm, I'm against that. And the things that we are currently releasing, I'm trying to get people to go, here's the idea, take it and, and fiddle with it and make it your own and just do it a bunch of times. Because you also have to try on your influences, You know, you can't go out and be a master magician. You have to figure out what works for you and what doesn't, and you do that by emulating people that you look up to. Um, So there's a healthy amount of that, but the the problem that I see is that a lot of people never get out of that phase. Yeah. And you just had it at the beginning. You had this tinkering... Um, I guess... um, Well, you saw the Long Beach Mystics, and they had all their their material that they were working on and creating and writing. And you got, you, you sort of, you developed it early. I, I, so even as it. a mystic,
1: here's one thing we had. We had Marvin Roy, who back then worked mostly in Europe or elsewhere in the world. But he, when he would come back to Los Angeles, uh, he was like an evangelist. He would come down to a Long Beach mystics show, or he would come to a meeting or something, or we'd, find that he was performing somewhere and and go out and see him and he would hold court and he would just drill into us. You know, you got to be original and you got to have your own thing. You you know, you don't want to be compared to anybody else. You know, if you if you come up with something new, you know, you'll be in demand all over the world. And he just hammered that into us, you know, and you look at Marvin's act and it's it's kind of a standard magic act, but he changed the object. And he disguised all those classic old tricks: zombie ball with a light bulb, you know, glass-lined trunk instead of a glass-lined trunk, a big glass light bulb. The girl appears in that. Uh, Harry Houdini did the needle-eating trick. Do it with little light bulbs, better. Um, you know, milk and light bulb, but, you know, producing light bulbs out of the air, do the sh- production of the chandelier, and you know, and it served him for fifty years. He was one of the top acts, performing all over the world because he figured out how to do these classic effects with a brand new object. And, of course, the, the great thing about it was, you know, back when Marvin was doing that act, you didn't have a an Apple watch that you could touch and it would do anything on Earth. The fact that these light bulbs were, were lighting up in his hands was unbelievable.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How is it? Where's the... Where's the cord?
0: How is that possible? Where's the electricity? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it was a, beyond the fact that this light bulb appeared out of nowhere. It's illuminated. So it was it was great. So we all just kind of thought, well, okay, we need to we need to have new and different stuff. And, and um, I know guys who are creative geniuses, and they just sit and stare at a blank piece of paper and invent something new, and that was never me. Uh, and I just kind of thought, There are so many great tricks out there. And I, you know, so now I have a big magic library, but it started by me reading old magic books or new magic books and saying, I really like this trick. This is a really good, simple effect. How can I disguise it? How can I make this look different? So I always liked the gypsy thread. I've never performed the gypsy thread in my life. Um, It's such a simple effect Real, everybody knows what that little reel of thread is, and you break it into pieces, everybody understands that, and they all come back together. It's unbelievable. Simple, great, great method, everything about it's great. But by being a, a stage guy, I thought, hmm, wouldn't it be great to be able to do a, a stage sized version that you can really see in the back of the house? And again, I, I was, I, this is all in my book, I was walking through a parking lot in Pennsylvania. With Tina, and like a bolt of lightning, it hit me. Roll of toilet paper, gypsy thread. Roll of toilet paper. It's even perforated, so it's easy to break into little squares. Everybody can see it. Everybody knows what it is. Everybody has rolls of that at home. Um, same effect. I just needed. I just need a new method. So um, uh, yeah, and that became that became a good thing. Then I by that time, I kind of had this character figured out. And so you, you kind of figure out, well, how would your magic character do this trick? Mm-hmm. And you figure that out. And in the book, that's the one trick where I wrote, um, I had the effect, I want to do the gypsy thread with toilet paper. And shortly after that, I got hired to perform a Tannin's Jubilee, which was a big deal for me coming from the West. I've, I've been reading about Tannin's Jubilee all my life and They always had great shows up in the Catskills, and I thought, well, I'd love to go back and really fool these guys, but I I really don't have the method for this thing, so I decided to cheat, and uh, I had a buddy of mine sit in the front row at the end, and so we passed all these little squares of toilet paper out, and then everybody waved them in the air so everybody could see these separate pieces, and they all passed them down to the end of the row, and that guy handed me back to me and I restored them. And you can tell when a bunch of magicians are fooled. And for years guys would come up to me, Yeah, I saw you tannins. I remember that trick you did with the paper. Man, I never saw you switch that thing. <laughs> it's because I didn't. They should have been watching the guy on the end of the road. So that was a. so I got to see the effect. Yeah. Here's the effect I had thought this will be great. And it was. It was funny I didn't refer to it as toilet paper. I referred to it as magic paper. Like this was some kind of special, valuable, only I have this paper. Mm -hmm. And the people in the audience are going, you idiot, that's toilet paper. We know what that is, which fit me. Uh, And now I've got this method that I got to have a friend travel around the country with me if I ever want to perform it again. And it was right after that that I got the It's Magic show that Bill Larson called. And I thought, I would love to do this at the It's Magic show, but I still don't have a, le- a method that I like. But we had an orchestra in the pit, and I met the orchestra leader and said, do you want to help me? And his name was Bill Hitchcock. He was a great guy. He said, sure, what do I have to do? And I told him, I'm going to have a guy in the center of the front row try to hand me this stack of pieces, but I'm not going to be able to reach him because the orchestra pit's too wide. You're going to reach up and take him from him and pass him over to me. But as you do, you're going to switch him. And, and he thought, oh, everybody will see me. And I'll say, you know what? I don't think they will. Because you're this ubiquitous guy that stands there all night. And all of a sudden, we've discovered I can't reach this guy. And in that instant, you saved the day. I don't think they'll remember you even touched him. So we practiced and practiced. And he was he wanted this to be perfect. And I can promise you, because of the number of people that I talked to, It fooled a lot of people. So I love this method. Now I have to carry an orchestra with me (laughs) instead of one guy. Then I came up with another method, which was just plain lousy. Uh, And the fifth method, oh no, then the fourth method was another method that I thought was great. And I put all these into into my big fat book. And I used this method for quite a while. And then something happened at a show and I thought I had been busted by a little kid that he figured it out. I have no idea if he actually did, but I was convinced that he had. So I thought I need a better method. So I kind of went back to square one and started it from scratch and created a different method. And I've now used that method for 30 years. And there may be a better method out there, but this one works and suits me and I feel comfortable with. And I, I've i talked to enough people to know that it gets past them. So yes, <clears throat> that's a great example. The subtitle of the Of the book I wrote with all my material in it uh, is something like uh, the long, slow process of creating magic for the real world. Because I know that when magician goes and sees someone like a Mac King or something like that, they go, "Oh, these routines—they're just perfect. They're so great. You know, I wish I could have an inspiration like Mac and come up with something like that." And I think if they only knew the years that Mac spent. Doing comedy clubs and working out,
0: cutting off his thumb. <laughs> yes,
1: cutting off his finger, and you know every line and every bit of business and every subtlety and every extra little layer of psychology that proves it—that one percent. And yeah, today when you when you watch it, you just say, "Well, this is perfect." And and to know that, and everybody that I know goes through this long torturous process to come up with. A finished product that's, you know, that's good. So yes, I said the same thing that you tell your customers in my book. I said, look, here are these tricks. Here's the secrets. Here's the pattern that I use.
0: That's not I, the point.
1: I don't. Yeah. That's yeah. not what you're supposed to be getting from this book. You know, this is the process. This is the process. So, you know, if there's a trick in this book that you think suits you and that you can do something with, have at it. But if you just take and memorize every word of patter and do it exactly, you know people are going to say, "Oh, yeah, he's doing Mike's trick." And yeah, is that? That's not what you
0: want. No, you don't want to be a knockoff. Yeah, just
1: disguise it.
0: Yeah. How did you create your character? How did that? Or because I'm sure it wasn't a necessarily yeah. so contrived, but how did it manifest? How did your character develop? You know
1: what? That is a that is the hardest part. That is the hardest part. Uh I don't know, um, because I can remember doing shows early times at the Magic Castle when I first joined, and I was kind of just doing tricks. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's when I did the linking coat hangers, uh, and I started talking about these coat hangers. Um, I, you know, I said I've had these coat hangers ever since they were little paper clips, and I grow them in my closet. And you know, none of that makes any sense. It's yeah. ridiculous. Um, and then other tricks, you know. I would. I started sort of explaining things, and in the routine, people listening, they would go, "Well, he's not making any sense. This is
2: completely
1: preposterous. What he's suggesting here." And then at the end of the day, everything I said was that would happen, even though it was ridiculous, has happened. I was successful, and the audience is thinking, "Well, this guy sounds like an idiot, but somehow." It's working. Whatever he says is going to happen, happens. So that's kind of what I became. I became an idiot. And uh, no matter how preposterous my suggestions are. like So some things I had to kind of, that I've been doing for a long time, I had to try to kind of roll into that philosophy or that mm-hmm. personality. But things that came later, like the bow and arrow trick, I felt like I was sort of already that guy when I said, um, I'm going to do this bow and arrow trick, which is basically the card sword with a bow and arrow. Yeah. I think better because early on, you know, there's many ways you could do that trick. You could just make a bow an arrow like a card sword. But um, I wanted the card to be a signed card, you know, even more than a torn corner. If it's signed, I just like that idea. So... Um, the, the routine, I explain what's going to happen. And this lady's going to hold a deck of cards over her heart. And I'm going to be blindfolded. And I'm going to be exactly 10 feet away. Because the string on the arrow is a quarter of an inch less than 10 feet. And I'm going to shoot the arrow at the girl's heart. And it's going to hit. And the audience has got to be thinking, you're out of your mind. You're going to kill this girl. And the girl's got to be thinking, you're out of your mind. I'm not going to stand here. So... It's this ridiculous thing. Now, mathematically, as I describe it, well, yes, mathematically, it's, it would work if you could actually hit that deck of cards square in the middle and the, the string allowed it to penetrate through half the card. But this is insanity. <laughs> so uh, that's why, yeah, everything I'm explaining is logical, but insane. And then the, the girl gets cold feet and I say, well, look, I, I know tricks harder than this. And we end up throwing the deck up in the air and I shoot this card out of the air and it, it really is on the arrow. And so it's this crazy guy explaining what he plans to do that only a lunatic would attempt. But at the end of the day, I shot this signed card out of midair on this arrow tied to a string. Uh, I guess it's possible it seems highly unlikely that you could do it but i did it so that uh, that's that's my character i love that and i i don't even have an example of where i could say here's where i hit on that and then i knew i had it it just is this long slow morphing process
0: and that that makes sense to me because there's i have been trying to write you know a, a clean close up set for a while now and there're different presentational ideas I'll have for some effects, and then I hit on one that really resonates with me, and I go, oh, this is what my character is supposed to be. It's like the trick informs the character, and then you build the character and a universe in which that trick makes sense. So, yes, once you
1: have a character, I think, I won't say that the routines write themselves, Mm -hmm. but immediately... If you have a trick that you want to do and you have an established character, um, you immediately know, well, I I could never say or do this. It yeah. doesn't fit. But here's what my character would absolutely say and do in this situation. It becomes so much easier to write pattern for something that uh, because you've got this place where you're coming from. And, uh, yeah, I, I had an idea. I wanted to do a... I still want to do it. It's another juggling thing. It uses golf clubs and a golf ball. And, uh, you know, you just need kind not a lot of pattern, just kind of an introduction. But when I I had seen a juggler do this and I went, wow. And it's, you know, it's an old juggling thing. Uh, How would I do that? And in a half an hour, I wrote all the pattern because I knew exactly what an idiot would do (laughs) when faced with this stuff. So it became easy.
0: And then what's stopping you from doing it? The practice? <laughs> yes. It's hard. It's really hard. Are you working on it? Uh, not enough. Uh, not enough.
1: Is is? It's a balancing thing.
0: Is it a club on top of a ball on top of a club?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've heard of this. There's different versions of it. And there was a guy in England who did it uh, that I saw. And man, oh man. You know, and I know it's gaffed. Now, when I say gaff, it's not f- a fake trick. Yeah. But as sh- seen, it's impossible. So there has to be some little assistance that makes it possible. It's still really hard, and you still have to balance things. And I've still spent a long time working, and I'm nowhere near. But at least with what I have figured out, I know it's possible if I continue to practice it.
0: And and how does the juggling? Like, why does that resonate with you? I don't know. I've all uh, I learned to
1: juggle when I was in high school. I always liked juggling. I always liked having the arm juggling in my act. It's pretty. It was basic three club juggling moves, but the fact that there were these arms and you know I was completely confused why people were laughing at me when I was trying to teach them to juggle, and so I I liked being. A, magi- a magician juggler, and then when I stopped doing the arms, uh, and then I put the coffee cup in there, which is a juggling thing, and that, I mean, that almost became my trademark. I'm known more for a coffee juggling than magic. <clears throat> so I've always been interested in juggling. I have a collection of juggling books, and I love watching jugglers and knowing jugglers, and, yeah, a big
0: fascination for juggling. I think it's really interesting. I've, I, I can juggle... Three balls, that's it. I can't do clubs. I tried. <laughs> I, I mean, I didn't really try. I spent an afternoon and yeah. it wasn't for me. But it's fascinating and I've always loved being entertained by jugglers. I've, I've never, you know, there's like a weird stigma. Like mag- magicians don't get to look down on very many people. And jugglers are the ones they choose, you know.
1: Well, they've chosen the wrong ones because it is a fact that any magic show that has a juggler on it, the juggler is going to crush the magicians. Yeah. Almost, almost always. Uh, You know, and the other thing that I always thought was interesting, we all have to practice a lot. Magicians practice, 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 and then when they perform, they hide from the audience everything they've been practicing. So the audience only sees the effect, and they don't see any of the secret stuff that they've spent all this time practicing. A juggler practice, 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 and then shows the audience everything he's been practicing. It's right out there on a platter for everybody to see and admire. So it's kind of coming from two different places. Um, Yeah. And I mean, I admire jugglers, a juggler that can juggle nine rings. It's unbelievable the amount of work and precision that goes into that. But I was never a numbers guy. I just looked for quirky, weird stunts. Yeah. That almost, you know, I mean, it's interesting. I think a lot of people, they go to a magic show and they see me and they know I'm a magician. And then I say, oh, it's time for my coffee break. And and again, this fits in to my character, to a T, coffee break. Can't wait till your act is over. Nope, union rules, coffee break. All right. So I I pour a cup of coffee and I say, I have a very unusual way of stirring it all up. And and you put it in a hoop and you're swinging it around. Are you out of your mind? How about using a spoon to stir it up? No, nope, this is how I've always done it. So it's 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 what an idiot would do to make a cup of coffee. Uh, and then when you throw it up in the air, they go, well, he's a magician. You know, this is this a trick. It's got to be some magnetic cup, fake coffee, something or other. Uh, but when they see coffee slosh up out and onto the floor and when I kick the hoop up and the cup flies out and I catch the coop, that's all to make them think he's really doing this.
0: So it's amazing. The power of darkness seems like it's a meld between juggling and magic.
1: Well, it's a really weird, a really weird thing. Uh, yeah. A magic trick that you show everyone except one person, exactly how it works. So that right there takes it out of the norm. Um, yeah. Tony Corinda put this out, a dealer in London back in the fifties. Uh, but he's not the guy that invented it. Um, Another guy that used to hang around Tony Corinda's shop is the guy that invented it, and uh, and he sold. They sold it, and then they sold the rights to Jay Marshall, and Jay Marshall sold it in America uh, from Magic Incorporated. And one year at Collectors' Weekend, Jay came out and performed the original version with with a ring, and I thought, man, this is really interesting. And so I bought one from Magic Incorporated, brought it home, and. I performed it once at a Long Beach Mystics meeting, and and I liked it. But, I, you know, once again, okay, anybody can buy this from Magic Ink and do it. I wonder how you can disguise this thing. And the one thing I had at home were coat hangers, hundreds of them. So I took some coat hangers, and I stretched one out and and found that just like with the, the linking rings, I could do some of those original things power of darkness moves and other ones I couldn't. So I ended up putting a a routine together and the, the routine that you saw the other night, um, amazingly, there were four phases. None of those phases are from the original powers of darkness routine, but, um, mine certainly wouldn't exist without, had not that original been put out.
0: How long did that routine develop? Um,
1: I don't think that long. Yeah. I think, uh, You know, once again, I started out with a really great proven routine and, uh, you know, that's kind of the heavy lifting just Mm -hmm. to change some of the techniques and the methods and you still have that great effect. So yeah, I I think just in fooling around with it, I mean, I'm, I'm sure for a short time, I spent a lot of time (laughs) fooling around and thinking about it, cutting folding halves but uh, yeah, then it kind of went together, and it's sort of never changed. I mean, some of the patter has, but
0: it's kind of been it for a long time. It's a great routine. So cool. I love, I love the the feeling in the audience, the feeling in the room watching it because they feel uh, honored. They've almost. been let in.
1: They've never experienced this before. When yeah. I say I need your help if we're gonna fool the girl up here, they go what? I thought we were just sitting passively watching. Nope, I need your help. And when it penetrates through her, I say it went right through your arm. And when I look at the audience and say, didn't it? And they all say, yeah, they know exactly what happened, but they're going to help me fool this girl. So, yeah, it's a a whole different experience for them. And because they've now been let in on the inside, uh, it's amazing. When it's all over and that girl, after the show is over, whoever the girl was, says, how did he get those things over my arm? I'm telling you, they will not tell her. Uh, They'll talk about any other trick in the show (laughs) and how they think it works. But because they've been let in and included in part of that secret, sorry, sweetheart. We can't tell you. It's amazing.
0: That's a beautiful thing, I think. Um, I would like to ask you a couple more things one of which is do you feel what what do you feel any sort of obligation or responsibility to write and share and and give back to the magic community um, i or do you I, just like
1: it yeah i i probably haven't spent any time thinking about if i'm obliged to do this because i like it so much that there's there's no reason to spend any time thinking about an obligation um I can't explain that either. I, when I was young, I bought magic books because I wanted to know how magic tricks worked. <clears throat> I think, you know, it's really important. You can, whenever you meet a magician, if you talk to him for a while, you can figure out what kind of a, a background they have in magic and if they have a foundation in magic. <clears throat> because every time you read a magic book, you're building on that foundation. And you'll read a trick you know, and you might say, well, I'm not going to do that thing. But uh, years later, you might have a magic problem that you need solving. And you say, you know, there was a guy who did us. He didn't do this, but he had a similar problem and he solved it this way. Well, that's what you want. You want to be able to dip into this big well of magic knowledge. All these guys that came before us, big famous guys and little guys you've never heard of, they they're like us. They spent their whole life thinking about that, the same sort of things. And a lot of those guys were really clever and they came up with some really good ideas. And many of those ideas ended up in books or in magazines. It's worth pursuing them. If for no other reason, just to keep them in your memory bank and have that knowledge as part of your foundation. Uh, Because now when when you get an idea and you want to build a routine, you're going to have all those generations of, of expert thought that you can use to your advantage. That's, that's a good thing. So I went from just buying books to read how tricks work to, I don't know, you know, I, it probably was a, I bought a, a reprint of a book maybe, and then somewhere along the line, I found an old first edition and I go, well, this is beautiful. And, you know, and I remember, <clears throat> I think it was Our Magic, Masculine Devant. You buy it, you know, like the Fleming edition, and it's got line drawings in it, which are very helpful. And you get the first edition, and you all of a sudden you've got photographs of David Devant standing on stage at St. George's Hall. And you go, well, this is unbelievable. This is what I want. Yeah. So I got interested in old, original, beautiful books and So given the choice, about a cheap reprint, and one you have to pay a little more for, but it's the old first, I'll take the old one. I like the smell.
0: Oh my gosh, me too. (laughs) So, uh,
1: and then that kind of brings us to Magic Magazines. A lot of great magic published in magazines. Today, you can subscribe to Conjuring Arts to Ask Alexander, and you'll have not all, but... A lot of mag- magic, millions of pages at your disposal all day and all night. So it's a resource that is, <clears throat> it's unheard of. It's so unbelievable. It's its the most valuable thing I can think of. It is so unbelievable. And yet, when I, and I use it constantly, and when I go on to Ask Alexander and punch in something and then find something, wow, this is just what I need, I get up from the computer I walk downstairs and I pull an old volume off the shelf and I open it up to that issue of that magazine and sit in a chair and read the old printed copy. I guess because I'm
0: a dinosaur. I
1: just like having a <laughs> book in my lap.
0: That's interesting. Do you, do you, do you drink anything? Do you, do you set a, an atmosphere, light a candle? Nope. Nope. <laughs> you nope. just sit down with the book. Yep. I like it. Here's
1: what you miss in the ask Alexander, ask Alexander thing. You know, if you, look in a database when you're down with the a bound volume of magazines in your lap and you're flipping through the looking for the page you're looking for you're going to stop and go wait wait what's what's this i don't remember seeing this and it's you know you end up spending an hour reading something that you just kind of stumbled into in the
0: magazine which is time consuming but great how is it being married to someone else who is a performer
1: uh, it's By great. the way,
0: I love, 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 love everything I've ever seen Tina do. Oh, well, I think good. she's absolutely phenomenal. Well, when I met Tina, <clears throat> we met at the Magic
1: Castle. She had been a mime in the L.A. Mime Company, which was a, an, an amazingly successful group of five pantomime artists that worked on Dick Van Dyke's variety TV show and, and other TV shows. And so they were really doing... Great stuff. And Tina was a street act; she did mime in the street. And uh, another street performer that she knew took her to the Magic Castle, and she just said, "Wow!" And she amazingly she called Bill Larson, said, H- "I want to work in the Magic Castle." And he says, well, "What kind of magic act do you do?" And she said, "I do a pantomime act." And he said, "Well, you have to be a magician." So she went down to the magic shop and said, "How do you be a magician?" And and put enough magic in her act where she could work the castle. And then, <clears throat> along, you know, and then developed the, the MOP Act, the Cleaning Lady Act, and, and that just resonated with people. You know, and it was a, she, she had this, she said, I want to do this, and it's going to be a cleaning lady, and are there cleaning lady tricks we can get? And, you know, she didn't know who she was yet, mm-hmm. and it made it really hard. And she said, well, I saw this trick, and I like this trick. And you kind of go, well, why would a cleaning lady do that trick? It doesn't make sense to me. And then one day, I don't know who, we decided, oh, I know what this is. This is Cinderella. This is Cinderella. You're the cleaning lady dreaming of being the princess. But no, that could never be me. And you fall asleep and you have a dream and the mop comes to life and transforms you into the princess. And at the end, you show every lady in the audience you can be a princess too this universal story that everybody loves and it's just kind of disguised as a magic act and that's why Tina has gone around the world for 30 some years doing this little fairy tale so yeah it was it was it was good so yeah by having a wife who's a performer there's a lot you don't have to explain for instance most couples would want to spend christmas together and new years together and go to some party or something and on a week from now, on Christmas Eve, I'm taking Tina to the airport and she's going to go to Spain for th- and then to France for three weeks and do a tour of a bunch of cities in Spain and then a tour of a bunch of cities in France and, and miss all of that. So m- normal people would say, Oh, well, that's horrible. You'll be home alone and Tina will be alone. You go, You know what? It's not that horrible. <laughs> Tina's going to have the time of her life over there, performing with friends and meeting new people and, and sharing Mop Man with new people that haven't seen it. And you know, and yeah, I'll be here. I'll believe me. I'll have plenty to do here. And uh, it's hard to get bored in this room, yeah. as you can see. <laughs> and then when she gets home, we're home all day every day. So people say, "Well, you're never together." We're always together. Um, it's people that have to go to work and sh- sell insurance all day long. They're the ones that are never together, you know, they're apart so so many hours a day.
2: Mm.
1: So, yeah, we feel like this is a a great thing both having the same interest, you know, and whereas Tina's certainly not a collector, she understands why all this stuff is in this room, that I'm passionate about it and that I use it and that I share it. Uh, and I turn it into articles and into books, and all that's good. And and it doesn't hurt that it's valuable, you know. Sure, it's not like you've spent that money and flushed it down the toilet. If we wanted to have a big auction, we'd get all that money back and more. So it's a good investment. And, and oftentimes we get to t- travel around the world together, which is great. So we we have traveled to many, many countries and done shows together and, and had sh- shared great adventures in amazing parts of the world. And that's just fantastic.
0: That, uh, that collaboration between the two of you must be really special. I think that's beautiful.
1: Yeah, it is. Uh, when it first started, we said, well, let's do an act together. It was a catastrophe, <laughs> total disaster. couple times, complete disaster. And we said, we can't do this. This is not healthy. (laughs) And it's better to each do our separate act.
0: Yeah. There's that. How did you, I mean, I guess catastrophic failure a couple times (laughs) helps, but like drawing the distinction, you know, finding the things that this is my thing, this is your thing.
1: Well, we had both been uh, solo performers. Mm -hmm. And when you do an act together, it's really hard to be equals. I mean, Siegfried and Roy... Siegfried was the magician, even though Roy was fantastic and unbelievable. Uh, he's kind of the guy that got in the cage and got turned into a tiger. And Siegfried's the guy shooting the gun. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it was hard for one of us to all of a sudden be the assistant. And anyway, yeah, we, we both wanted to be performers.
0: And so it's better. Well, Thank you. Um, there's one more thing, but I don't remember what it was. Oh, what is it that you want your audience to experience? So here's what I want, because I know
1: I've seen lots of comedy magicians, you know, and they get huge laughs, and the magic is just kind of a way for them to get huge laughs, and the tricks,
2: and they're okay,
1: or sometimes they're not even that okay. But the guy gets huge laughs, and the audience loves them, and that's that. They're happy. Everybody's happy. That that doesn't make me happy, because. you know, from the time I was nine, I wanted to be a magician. And I wanted to, I mean, I love that f- feeling that we still get when you see something that fools you, you go, it's unbelievable. Oh, yeah. How on earth? That's just, there's no other thing like that. So by being so interested in magic for so long, I want, I want two things. I do comedy magic. So during the performance, I want the audience to laugh and have fun and just feel good and when the, when the magic show's over, my act is over, they say, oh, that was just funny and wonderful. And we just had the best time. On the drive home and the next day and the next month, I want them to say, where the hell was that chicken? <laughs> he was out there for 30 freaking minutes. And then he produced a chicken out of that guy's coat. There's no way. That guy's got to be a stooge. No, we talked to that guy. There's no, he wasn't a stooge you know and, and any any trick in my act like the bow and arrow thing no they wrote their name on that card no it it was really impaled on that arrow it's there's no way he shot that card out of the air that's it, it's just impossible i want to drive him crazy i want i want the magic to be so strong that that it hurts them and I would love to have the methods be so rock solid and be so layered with subtlety and psychology and tiny bits of business that improve the, the method so much that they can say, I'm going to go back and see this again and be fooled a second time. So, and one example of that I always use is when I, the first book I wrote of my stuff, Magic Comedy, it came out like, I don't even know when, nineteen. 80s or something like that, a long time ago. Uh, And there's a a version of the bill and cigar in there. And that goes back when I bought, like everybody in America, bought Terry Seabrook's bill and wallet routine, which Seabrook started selling, I think, in 1974. Great, great premise, great trick. So I bought one. And like I did, I thought, well, if I didn't have it end up in the wallet, where could I have it end up? And so I decided, what if it was inside a cigar? And I started doing that and I put my routine and my gimmick and everything in magic comedy book. But as the professor always said, the trick is never finished, never stop thinking about a trick. And I continued to think about that. And the bill in cigar trick changed a lot. And so now I say, and the, the current version is in my new book, Wonders. If you got a copy of Magic Comedy and read my description of the Bill and Cigar and then came and watched me perform it today, I think you'd be completely fooled because uh, the method and the presentation and everything about it has changed so much. And the, the what started out as the Bill and Wallet <clears throat> now is kind of a nest of boxes. The Bill is signed, and uh, and I give this guy a cigar that's, that's in a glass tube, and at the end of the routine, we we unscrew the lid to this glass tube, and the cigar inside is sealed in cellophane, and we break the cellophane open, and pull out the cigar, and break the cigar in half, and there, in amongst the tobacco, is the signed bill. So I think it's a I think it's much more amazing than the bill in the wallet, and uh, so. And I think it can withstand repeated viewings and still be amazing. So, so that's what I want. I want them to laugh and be happy and be amazed and amused. And then, if they continue to think about the the magic effects that I did, which I hope they will, they will be completely flabbergasted and have no explanation for them.
0: That's excellent. That's I, I that's great. And what I think a lot of comedy magicians ought to ought to strive for, um, just you know, kind of a lightning round to finish it off. Uh, what, who's your favorite magician from history or, Or, you know, top three?
1: Um, I don't know. Let me see the, my favorite illusionist that I saw and then got to work with two different times was Richie Ardy. Uh, and I, I thought he was a madman and the greatest illusionist ever and a thrill to stand in the wings and watch. Um, if I could go back in time and see somebody, I would love to be able to see Leroy Talma and Bosco, because I think Sir Valeroy was certainly a great inventor, and I I think was a great performer. And I would love to see his wife, Talma, who uh, probably was second only to T. Nelson Downs as a coin manipulator. Wow. And then to see one of the Boscos, there were about eight or nine of them, but the big roly-poly character that did funny stuff. It must have been a, a great show that just encompassed everything. But, <clears throat> I mean, so many. I'd love to see Nate Leipzig on a vaudeville stage entertain a, a theater with the copper-silver coins. you know, transposition. Really? Yep, yep, he did it. I mean, you. after you've read so many reviews, and they say, oh, he was just unbelievable, and the expression on those spectators' faces which I suspect was how he did it when the spectators reacted to these transpositions. Uh, So that would have been a great lesson. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of guys I would love to have seen. I would love to have seen Chung Ling Su, who was a great magician and wasn't particularly successful until he decided to be a Chinese magician, and all of a sudden he was a, a sensation. Who would you like to see?
0: I would like to have met Di Vernon. Ah, well, there is that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I also would like to have seen uh, Keller and Thurston. So um, Harry Keller never invented a thing that I know
1: of. Mm-hmm. He didn't do any sleight of hand. There, I don't think there was anything funny about him. And he was, for a while, the biggest magician in America which is pretty amazing.
0: I need to know why.
1: (laughs) I think he was everybody's favorite uncle. And he was charming, and people loved him, and he did great magic. And, you know, that's the thing. Like they say, if you can get your audience to like you, they'll watch you do anything. They don't care what you do. They'll watch you do anything. Yeah. And I think Keller was probably a really likable, pleasant, charming guy. You know, whereas Herman... Herman did sleight of hand and got huge laughs and and was kind of completely different. Would have been great to see either one of those guys. Would have been great to see Keller's levitation.
0: I would also love to have seen Molini.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that would be a real experience, that this guy who could go around the world with, and with stuff in his pockets almost entertain anybody, kings and queens and everybody else.
0: And then uh, the last question is... Can you remember the time that you had the most severe moment of astonishment? You were fooled the hardest, just totally felt like a donkey kicked your head in. Um, I have been fooled with <clears throat> by a donkey kick many times.
1: <laughs> um, I wonder, what, let me see. I the uh, the reason I think of this is cuz I just told, talked to somebody about this the other night, so it's fresh in my mind, and it's not some unbelievable stage illusion or something, but it was at FISM in the competition when my good friend Pavel came out uh, and he had entered invention category. And for the first time ever performed Pavel's walking knot. And he cut this rope and he tied the ends together and he slid the knot down the rope and he untied the knot. And I remember sitting in the audience thinking, man, if only he could drop those two ends of that rope now. Because, you know, I'm sure he's got a little piece in his hand or he's got something. But, you know, if he really could do that effect, tie that knot, move it and untie it, he'd be able to drop those two pieces of rope, his hands would be, and he did. And my head exploded. (laughs) Everybody's head exploded, including the judges. Their heads exploded. They didn't have the slightest idea what this guy invented or how this trick worked. So that was great. Um, I wonder what else? Uh, I don't know, but I mean, just there's close-up tricks that 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 completely fool you, and it's a great reminder as to what we're chasing here, yeah. Why we're doing this when you can, you know? That's the thing. People grow up and they they think they understand the world and they they understand how things work and they understand when I do this, this will happen, and you know, and the life gets kind of boring. Throw the switch, the light bulb's going to come on. It's what happens. And then they see something that doesn't fit into any of that knowledge that they have. In fact, it, it goes against all of that knowledge. That, and they go, I don't understand anything. This, this is completely out of the realm of what I thought was possible. Maybe anything's possible. If this is possible, anything is possible. It's a good reminder. So we all love being that guy, not in, a, in an uppity way to say, you're not as smart as you think you are. And certainly not to say I'm smarter than you. Nobody benefits from that. But to say you need to pay attention. There's a lot in this world that you don't understand. So it's okay to be surprised and it's okay to to go out and look for things that sound impossible and maybe they aren't. If this is possible, anything is.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much, Mike. This has been such a pleasure. pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Magical Thinking. If you enjoyed the show, head over to patreon.com, that's P A T R E O N.com, slash, Magical Thinking, and become a patron to support the show and get access to exclusive content like magic audiobooks, tips on style and fashion, a revamped book club, behind the scenes pictures and video, audio answers to your magic questions, and more. You can get in touch with me by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com. And when you're finished, head into your podcast app and leave a rating and a review for Magical Thinking. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Cheers.